Welcome to Going Back, 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 the sports history podcast with all the stories you need to know and some you don't. My name is Brian Gay, and here with me is my co-host, Tom Young. Each week, Brian and I will be choosing a story from this week in sports history, and this episode will be two different events from February 5th to February 11th. We'll also be covering some of the current hot topics in sports entertainment, all drinking a few cold local beers and seeing where the night takes us. All right, so I got another sports fact to start off the show tonight. Um, shout out to friend and listener of the pod, Christian. Christian. He provided me with this one. So to start the 1990 NBA season, the Chicago Bulls started out 0-3. From December 1990 through June 1998, and this fact contains to when Michael Jordan was an active player on the team, Okay, the Chicago Bulls never lost more than two games in a row. For eight years? Correct. That's pretty significant. So you lose two, you win. They never lost three games in a row during that time span. I mean, I'm not surprised. You look at the teams they had and some of the records they had and just how good they were at the time. It doesn't surprise me one bit. Not at all. I mean, those were some of the greatest teams in NBA history. And So the record over that time span, found this on Basketball Reference, um, regular season record is 388 wins, 104 losses. Playoff record of 90 wins, 24 losses. Equals out to about a 79 win percentage overall. Which would be, I mean, which is probably has to be the highest winning percentage for any team in NBA history over that kind of span. I would imagine. I mean, especially that long, it's not like it's one or two years. No, it's eight years of dominance. Eight, almost 80% winning percentage for eight years. Is That's dynasty, dominance, whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, I think without a doubt, anything that Michael Jordan except maybe his end of the end of career wizards teams were competitive winning basketball teams. I mean, even then he was still very good. Just not the same player. I mean, obviously the game's falling off a little bit. He's approaching what 40 years old playing into his early forties. I think when he eventually hung it up, but doesn't have Scotty Pippen around him. No, Steve Kerr, Horace Grant. No, I mean, Michael Jordan is, I mean, he's obviously one of those guys that is considered the great, one of the greatest of all time. Or greatest of all time, that's such a debate, and it will forever be a debate. I, I'm with you on that. Um, but any, it's it's gone. We've seen year in and year out that even the best players need a team around them to for success to win championships. Any great player can go out and score points, get rebounds, you know, any counting stat. But to actually win championships, stars need other stars. LeBron didn't couldn't do it without Kyrie or his dream team in Miami. Yeah, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh. Yeah, I mean, you look at like the the Celtics dynasty of back in the day, starting with um oh my god, why you going Larry Legend, you going KG more recent. No, Larry Legend. Yeah, okay. dropping yeah, all the and uh Robert Parrish. Yeah. Yeah. So there's oh, and I was thinking Bill Russell as well. Yeah, the, I think that was Bill old. Russell teams had superstars as well, but they that's had, what, that's, 11, 11 titles. Yeah, that's way back as well, but all those guys, you know, had other superstars around. It wasn't just one guy carrying a team. Uh, that's why you, Wilt Chamberlain's not known for winning championships. Not saying he didn't. I don't know off the top of my head it, what, how many he may have won. But when people talk about winners, that's why they always go Bill Russell. I mean, 11, 11 titles is no joke. Pretty sure he won. Yeah, I was thinking one off the top of my head looking it up here. He's won. Uh, Wilt won two titles, 1967 and 1972. Yeah, so dude who had arguably the greatest individual stats of all time. On and off the court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely on and off the court um doesn't have the same kind of championship success as the guys that had superstars around them and 
Same goes for Michael Jordan. I mean, Scottie Pippen played second fiddle to Jordan for almost his entire career and very well could have been a superstar in his own right. Yeah, I mean, I think Scottie was a Robin to the Batman, though. I don't, like, as we saw when Michael Jordan did retire for those couple years, granted, the Bulls still made the playoffs, but they never got a total without MJ. I think that just goes to show the greatness of Michael in and of itself as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then even when he came back, though, is when they really stacked those teams. That's when Rodman came around and Kukoc. Yeah, I was going to say Kukoc. Yeah, and, and, I mean, guys like Steve Kerr, who played their role and made shots, moved the ball, did what they had to do. It's when he came back from baseball that those teams are really, like, borderline super team, to be honest. I hate that phrase, and it's honestly a large part of why I don't watch a lot of basketball these days is the super team. Um, it doesn't sit well with me, especially when you only have like 12 to 14 guys on a roster. These guys linking up to join these super teams and chase championships. I don't know why. I don't like it. But that might just be me. I mean, end of your career is one thing, but when you're taking, you know, big pay cut to go and join join Michael win the Bulls and things like that, not saying those players did, but just an example, I think you're better off like Charles Barkley. He never went and did anything like that. He never won a title. He tried to do it on his own more current day Damian Lillard he says he's staying loyal to Portland doesn't want to leave there so I mean props to them unlike KD who loses to the to the Warriors with the OKC Thunder and then joins them and wins a title yeah I'm also not a big fan of the way that people use titles as like a a sign of who the greatest of all because like Robert Horry has seven titles nobody's considering him one of the greatest of all time but he's got the rings so it's like I, I I hate that argument when it comes to sports is that winning championships means that you are uh, great. Part of this might stem from being a Bills fan. Those Bills teams lost four Super Bowls in a row, but they were some absolutely incredible. I mean, there's hall, numerous Hall of Famers on those teams. Are they not some of the greatest at what they did just because they didn't win titles? There's plenty of guys that have won them. I mean, Trent Dilfer led the the Ravens to a Super Bowl. Anyone want to argue that he's a great a great because he's not he's barely a good. Yeah, you got me there. I don't think you can argue good. Nope. Titles is an overrated... I mean, it's cool. Everyone wants to win a championship, but when it comes to the greatest players of all time, titles, I don't mean nearly as much as people try to try to make them. I mean, props to you for getting a ring. Something yeah. I'll never have in my life, like yeah. lifetime like that. But yeah, I, I agree to an extent. I, I believe it is kind of overrated to say guys like that aren't as good as they are because of the fact they don't have a championship ring. Yeah, I'm not trying to downplay the achievement of winning a championship because obviously that is what everyone plays. Well, that's what we all started playing the game for was to win. I'm sure at a certain point it becomes money for a lot of people, but there are still so many people that are competitors. They want to win. So when you're setting out to do that, that's the goal. But I don't think that that is sure that helps the argument for somebody to be put into that great or greatest of all time conversation. But I don't think it's a make or break stat in my opinion. No, totally agree. Um, I don't have much more to add on to no, that one fine. there. I um, think we can just dive right into your story for tonight. Does that sound good, Brian? Yeah, I think so. Real quick before we get into the stories, let's just hear a real quick word from our sponsors and we will be right back. This episode of Going Back, Back, Back is brought to you by Rucci Heating and Cooling LLC located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. For all of your heating, air conditioning, and plumbing needs, call the professionals today at 484-849-1015. Rucci Heating and Cooling LLC, the one-stop call for your business and or home. Call them again at 484-849-1015. All right, and we're back. So, Tom, uh, last week I was we were in 1924 looking at the 
first Winter Olympics. We're throwing it back even further this time. I'm going back to February 7th, 1908. And with this, might not sound like all that exciting, but we're, we're really going to get into it. On this date in 1908, the Philadelphia Athletics, no longer in Philadelphia, long gone from Philadelphia, their manager and owner Connie Mack sold off future Hall of Famer Rube Waddle to the St. Louis Browns for $5,000. It may be Waddell. I'm not entirely sure, but we're just going to go with Waddle for now. Um, Whatever floats your boat. So, Tom, have you ever heard of Rube Waddell? Never heard of Rube, no. All right, so Rube is just, he's all... Another just interesting story. This is similar to my Minute Bowl um, story where the event itself might not be the biggest, but the character behind it is just so fascinating. Um, so it actually is a big trade because, first and foremost, previously Connie Mack made a point of going out to trade for and acquire Rube Waddell. Um, Rube is actually best remembered for a couple things. Number one being his highly eccentric behavior. Um, the dude has a lot of crazy antics. Um, did a lot of wild stuff. It sounds like there was more going on than just being eccentric. We'll dive into that here in a bit. But also, he was in a r- remarkably dominant strikeout pitcher in an era when contact was at an all-time high and guys were not striking out. Like, it was not yeah, a part of the angle game. wasn't the thing. Yeah, so it, guys were not really striking out. They were all about putting the bat on the ball. Power wasn't the biggest part of the game. Um, he had an excellent fastball, a sharp breaking curveball, a screwball, and superb control. His strikeout-to-walk ratio was almost 3-1, to one, and he led the major leagues in strikeouts for six consecutive years. Surprised I never heard of this guy then. Yeah, so this is part of it is the age that we're talking about here. Yeah, he's 1908. 1908. So 100, That's even like before Babe Ruth. Yeah, 120, uh, <laughs> 115 years ago. Uh, there's a lot going on here. Um, but like his numbers and the stuff that he was doing holds up in today's game where like you look back at a lot of the old statistics, and you know that they're just a product of that day. Um, so yeah, he had excellent fastball, um, a really sharp curveball and a screwball screwballs. You don't really see much cause the action that you have to do with your arm is really not good for you. Um, his pitching repertoire really only consisted of two of the pitches. He really threw what was considered arguably one of the fastest fastballs in the league and that breaking curve, but he had a bunch of other little pitches that screwball and whatnot. Um, Connie Mack actually once said that Waddell's curve was even better than his speed. He had the fastest and deepest curve he's ever seen. Um, the man was such a dominant pitcher and such an eccentric behavior that he enjoyed waving his teammates off the field and then he would go and strike out the side. So he would tell, it's something you see like the Savannah Bananas try to do. Right. He would go and sit, he'd tell all his teammates, Hey, go sit on the bench. I got this. And then would go and strike out the side. And he, uh, granted, he only did so in, like, exhibition games back in the day. Baseball wasn't as regulated as it is now. There wasn't so much of a schedule. Um, so they would play a lot of exhibitions and stuff to make additional money. I mean, talk about the audacity, though. you got to feel as a hitter like you're being totally disrespected. It's one of the cockiest things I've ever heard. Absolutely. And I, like, I respect it because you're doing that for one of two reasons. One, you're, you're off in the head. Or two, you just know you're really good. Turns out Rube was both. I was say probably a combination of both, <laughs> based on what you're telling me so far with Rube. Yeah, so it was a perfect combination of both. Um, official baseball rules obviously would not allow this to happen, as you had to have nine men on the field. Um, but in a league game in Detroit, uh, Waddell actually had his outfielders come in close and sit down on the grass to watch him strike out the side. Um, the stunt actually backfired one time. He was pitching in Memphis. He took the field alone with just his catcher for the last three innings. With two outs in the ninth, 
Um, the catcher dropped the third strike, and the batter got the first on the drop third strike. The next two fielders blooped pop flies that fell just behind the mound. Rue ran himself ragged, and but then subsequently actually struck out the last man. So he didn't end up allowing a run, and he got out of that. So George Waddell is an interesting character. Grew up in northwest Pennsylvania, and born in Bradford, grew up in Prospect, and he was just an odd kid off the bat, so they kind of always knew that Rue was just, he was an oddball. Around the age of three, it was reported he wandered over to a local fire station and just stayed there with them for several days. Um, he didn't really go to school very often. And he so he was left-handed and strengthened his arm by throwing rocks at birds <laughs> and also working on mining and drilling sites as a kid. So, Sounds entertaining. Yeah, I mean, throwing rocks at birds is a, I mean, would really get your aim honed in. And I, and I think he could really do that, you know, killing two birds with one stone. I bet you he got to that point. I mean... Really going to start painting corners with that kind of accuracy. <laughs> right. So he was definitely, um, uh, again, an interesting character. His career wound through a number of teams because he was hard to pin down, um, notably just really unpredictable. Early in his career at one point, he once left in the middle of the game to go fishing. Um, Did he catch anything? I'm not sure. That was not reported. Um, I'm not sure he would have even talked about it afterwards based on what I've read about him. He also had a longstanding fascination with fire trucks. And ran off the field multiple times to chase them during games. Uh, he would disappear for months at a time during the off season, and it was not really known where he went. And then it was found that he was wrestling alligators in a circus. Um, opposing fans realized that he, was, he was easily distractible, and they would bring puppies to the game and hold them up. He would run over to the puppies um, and get them distracted, as well as shiny objects, which seemed to put him in a trance. Imagine this guy playing today with social media. Oh, my God, dude. I, he would be like a superstar, I feel like. Or there's more going on with him, and he never would have gotten this chance. Yeah, one of two yes. two, two things there. Yeah, so it sounds like the more you read into it, like there's something more than just being eccentric, something off with Rube. Um, unfortunately, what came with a lot of his, who he was as a person, is that he was also a pretty heavy alcoholic for much of what ended up being a pretty short life for Rube. Um, he reportedly spent his entire first signing bonus on a drinking binge. Um, and to the point, he also got developed the nickname of a uh, sauce paw. So a sauce or a sauce is uh, somebody that used, at least back in the day was referred to as someone that would drink heavily. So he was given the nickname the sauce paw. Um, his eccentric behavior due to his drinking and what seems to be some mental health issues led to constant battles with his manager and scuffles with bad-tempered uh, teammates. So he was not known for being the most uh, amenable, agreeable person. Well, I'm sure when you leave in the middle of a game to go fish and chase down fire trucks, your teammates aren't going to be too thrilled with you, yeah, especially you, if you're on the mound that day. And you clearly either don't care or some, there's a couple screws loose up top. It really sounds like he was not the sharpest uh, tool in the shed. Um, shout out Smash Mouth for that one. So <laughs> what else signed his first professional contract uh, $500 with a team in Louisville where he pitched for two league games and a couple of exhibitions at the end of the 1897 season. When the season ended, he was loaned to the Detroit Tigers of the Western League to gain professional experience, but he was, ended up defaulting on a rent and was fined by the team owner and was sent. Um, he left Detroit because he had no other options, went to pitch in Canada before eventually returning to Homestead, PA, where he pitched some semi-pro baseball. However, Louisville still retained his rights, and he was loaned to Columbus of the Western League in 1899. 
and continued on with them when the franchise moved to Grand Rapids midseason. And this is why people put up with him because he finished that season with a record of twenty six and eight. Hey, that that'll do. No, I mean, yeah. So a bit of a matter what, bit of a headache. Era, but the man could, in. Man could throw the freaking ball. Um. So then he rejoined Louisville. Um. Spent some time with them, and then Louisville was bought out by Pittsburgh, and the Louisville franchise was terminated. This was the beginning of the Pittsburgh Pirates franchise. So Louisville's top players included Rube Waddell, Honus Wagner, and Fred Clark, and they were all transferred to Pittsburgh. It's a good start of a squad. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, Got to be happy to have those <laughs> your building blocks. Yeah, Honus Wagner, one of the uh, original Hall of Famers of baseball and the longtime selling, um, most expensive baseball card in the world. I think it sold for, what, a couple million or so? Yeah, ridiculous. Um, so Waddell debuted with the Pirates in 1900. He led the National League in ERA, but his er- erratic behavior led to issues with Fred Clark, who was actually the manager, and led Fred Clark to suspend him. Um, after all this, he pitched some semi-pro ball in some small towns, including Puxatawney, um, hanging out with Phil, the, uh, the groundhog. Did you see a shadow that day or? I don't know. I don't know where he, he, he didn't, uh, didn't elaborate on that. Um, Connie Mack, actually, this is when Connie Mack first learned of, uh, Rubidell. Connie Mack at the time was the manager of the Milwaukee Brewers. So with Pittsburgh's approval, Mack convinced Waddell to pitch for Milwaukee for several weeks in the summer of 1900. It's crazy how that works. You can just be like, yeah, can I borrow your pitcher for a little bit? Yeah, I'll give him back at the end of the year. Yeah, you could have him back in a, in a couple months. Um, Milwaukee was in the newly named American League at the time, formerly known as the Western League, which was not yet directly competing with the National League. On August 19th, Waddell pitched the first game of, dub- of a doubleheader for Milwaukee, winning in the 17th inning on his own triple. Um, so afterwards... Um, Mac actually, Connie Mac actually offered Waddell a three-day fishing vacation if he agreed to pitch the second game after throwing 17 innings in the first game. Hey, you only have one arm, whatever. Yeah, but hey, afterwards, Waddell, um, in the uh, second game, Waddell actually threw a complete game shutout for the victory, headed up to the lake to go fishing, and uh, Pittsburgh was pretty pretty de- dead set on him coming back and joining the squad. So how many innings did he pitch that day? 17 and then nine? Nine, so 26 innings. <laughs> Yeah, and was hitting at the same time. So, yeah, a different, I mean, different game. These guys, you go look at, like, the pitching record books, and so many of those records are from this period because it was just, I don't think they were, th- honestly, I can't imagine they were throwing as hard. No, I mean, I don't know how fast. Do you have any stats on how fast Rube was throwing? There, I saw a stat. Or, like, any I, estimates? I may have one in here um, because I remember reading about it at one point, but I don't remember exactly what it was. If we come to it. I mean, it was ni- it was nineteen hundred. There wasn't really a great way to measure that, um, but if we get to that, we will. Um, I'll let you know because I don't recall. Or if you find it, let me know. So this was nineteen hundred. Everyone was really excited about him in Pittsburgh, but due to his ways, he had worn out his welcome in Pittsburgh by nineteen oh one. He really only made it about a year, and he was sold to the Chicago Cubs, then managed by a man named Tom Loftus. Despite his previous success, and this is the man that actually managed him in Columbus slash Grand Rapids, um, he just wasn't given the wasn't given the power he needed to truly manage Waddell and all of his issues that he dealt with. His eccentric behavior. Yeah, yeah. So that actually led to Loftus having to suspend Waddell. And so Rube said, screw it. I'm leaving the Cubs. And he went to pitch for some semi-pro teams in northern Illinois as well as in racing in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, he was then invited to join a barnstorming team that traveled to California, where he was persuaded to stay and join the Los Angeles Lulus in a league that a year later would become the Pacific Coast League. 
I believe the Lulus did end up being the Los Angeles, I want to say Angels, because the Dodgers obviously started in Brooklyn. Right. Um, so all this was going on, Connie Mack made his way to Philadelphia, where he would then spend the next 50 years of his career. Connie Mack spent an absurd amount of time in, with the Philadelphia A's. So he moved to Philly, and he was absolutely desperate for pitching when he re- learned that Waddell was out there and still pitching in California. So he dispatched two Pinkerton agents, they're kind of private eye kind of guys, to sneak Waddell back to Philadelphia. He signed him on to the Philadelphia A's, who then won the 1902 American League crown. Um, later, Connie Mack would actually describe uh, Rube Waddell as the atom bomb of baseball long before the atom bomb was discovered. So just to give you an idea of the volatility and, I guess, explosiveness of this uh, this pitcher, he is a, a real, real interesting character. Um, on July, f- this is another fun stat, because there's, there's so many about this guy. On July 1st of 1902 in Philadelphia, he became the second major league pitcher to throw an immaculate inning. Tom, do you know what that is? Nine pitches, nine strikes. Yes, sir. And struck out all three batters on nine total pitches in the third inning of a 2-0 win over the Baltimore Orioles, who that Baltimore Orioles team is actually the present-day New York Yankees. Oh, interesting. So, <laughs> Baseball has such a long, sordid, weird history. It's weird how they all go from, like, one city to another. Like, the Philadelphia Athletics, that is, that's where the Phillies play now, but, like, they were originally called the Athletics. And well, actually, moved to the Phillies were actually a separate team. The Phillies and the A's were separate separate organizations. Oh, really? I always thought they were the same. Yeah, so the Phillies and A's were separate organizations, but that'd be a fun fun episode to get into, actually, the history of both. Especially with spring training rolling up uh, around the corner, about a week away. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, because the Phillies are one of the longest operating teams with the same fran- name and franchise and sports history, not just baseball. Yeah, I want to say like 1883 is when they were founded. Yeah, so the A's and Phillies are totally different places, which makes it even more interesting, but you have that in a few things. The Baltimore Ravens uh, were the Browns, and then the Browns re- start uh, started a new team. The Baltimore Colts moved to Indianapolis. I mean, there's so many different – there's actually a lot of situations like that in sports. Um, yeah, 1883, so I mean, speaks as to why they have the most losses in baseball <laughs> history. You've been around for yeah, that long. Yeah, gives them some longevity to at least like make that – Take the sting off of that record. So, um, after that 1902 season, reports actually came out that Rube Waddell was actually going to play for Connie Max. Uh, there was a Philadelphia Athletics football team. However, he never ended up actually playing for the football team. Um, Mac later said that there was this little fellow from Wanamakers who asked for the job of quarterback. I don't think he weighed more than 140 pounds. Well, the first practice, Waddell tackled him and broke his leg. It was the first inkling John Scheib and I had that players could be badly hurt in football, so we got Rube right out of there. We knew he'd be really good, but we never wanted to find out. So Waddell actually returned to his family's home in Northwest PA and played a little football there, and then he actually went on and played a little soccer as well as a goalkeeper in the St. Louis Soccer League. Sounds like a better idea than football. Yeah, I would say so. Definitely less injury risk there. So there's, oh, believe it or not, Tom, there's actually quite a bit more to Rube Waddell. Um, in his prime, he was actually, he was the game's premier power pitcher. So in 1903, a time when baseball was all about batters making contact, plays being made in the field, Rube Waddell struck out 302 batters, 115 more than the next most, um, of any pitcher in the league. That's impressive. Yeah. Pretty ridiculous. Um, but then to make that even crazier, according to baseball historian Lee Allen in the American league story. Waddell actually began the 1903 season sleeping in a firehouse in Camden, New Jersey, which you would never want to do today. 
and uh, ended the season tending a bar in a saloon in Wheeling, West Virginia. In between that, he ended up winning 22 games for the A's, toured the nation with a melodrama called The Stain of Guilt. Um, so he did a little acting. He also courted, married, and became separated from May Wynn Skinner of Lynn, Massachusetts. He saved a woman from drowning, accidentally shot his friend in the hand, and was also bitten by a lion. I mean, what hasn't this man done? <laughs> Live past the age of 40, unfortunately. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, I find I don't have anything else to say because he's did so much. Um, his performance in The Stain of Guilt was actually notable in that his co-stars, who had realized that he was incapable of memorizing his lines, allowed him to improvise his scene lines for every show, and the play actually gained a ton of critical acclaim, and it was much discussed for a scene in which Waddell lifted the actor playing a villain and threw him across the stage with ease. So um, on the back of this newfound stardom, so, uh, Rube Waddell actually used his newfound uh, stardom to negotiate a higher wage for his baseball career. A um, couple other, I mean, uh, we can get, like goes on and on. Um, there are stories about in 1905, um, about 14 years before the Chicago White Sox World Series scandal. Um, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Yes, sir. That's another great, very interesting story. Um, there's mention of Waddell being bribed to not pitch in the 1905 World Series against the New York Giants. Further discussion of that World Series has been taking place at Sabre, the people that Sabre metrics. Sabre related to the office, selling printers? No, no, no. No printers involved. They, might, they probably own printers, but no. Sabre metrics. The, uh, it's an, an analytics firm. So he had thrown 349 strikeouts in 1904. 110 more than the next next runner-up. Um, and no other pitcher actually compiled 300 strikeout seasons until Sandy Koufax again in 1965 and 66. So, I don't know where this is going about the Sabre metrics. There was no proof that he did do anything to throw the World Series. And there don't show to be any... I don't have the confirmed stats on that. Um, but all I know is that the next season out, he came out through 47 more strikeouts than the year before. Um... So that puts him on, what, like 350? I think he said 349. Yep, 349 strikeouts in 1904. 110 more than the runner-up that year. Um, and, yeah, so Sandy Koufax was next to do it in 1965 and 66. So it didn't happen again for another 60 years um, after that. Rubidell was the opposing pitcher for Cy Young's perfect game on May 5th, 1904, and actually hit the fly ball for the final out. Um, his 349 strikeouts were the modern season, uh, modern era season record for more than 60 years and actually still remains sixth on the modern list, which is, I mean, that for was, a single season for a single season. Yeah. 117 years ago, 118 years ago in 1946, it was initially believed that Bob feathers fellers, 348 strikeouts had broken Waddell's single season mark, but research into the 04 1904 season box scores revealed uncounted strikeouts that lifted um, Waddell back above Feller, Feller, and Waddell still holds the AL single-season strikeout record by a left-handed pitcher. So, are these modern stats? Because I I looked up just in baseball reference, some guy in 1886 had 513 strikeouts in one year. Yeah, strictly modern era. Yeah, strictly modern era. 20-year-old Matt Kilroy, 513 strikeouts when he pitched 583 (laughs) innings. Yeah, that was a different era of baseball. Um, What year was that? 1886. So I don't know about that specific era, but up until a certain point in the late 1800s, pitchers still threw underhand. And there was different things going on. 
Um, it's a very it's very interesting the turn it took. So yeah, that's why you talk about dead ball era, modern ba- um, and then the modern era. There's kind of that split. I don't know the exact what the exact reference is for that split, but there are very different eras and periods in baseball. Yeah, for sure. And I, I just got to shout this guy out. He's on here, Old Hoss Radborn, twenty nine years old, eighteen eighty four. 441 strikeouts across 678 and two-thirds innings. He was 29. They called him Old Hoss. Old Hoss Radborn. Old Hoss. I can just picture him with a big old chew in his lip and like... Smoking like a cigar in between <laughs> innings. <laughs> yeah. Slugging down hot dogs with Babe Ruth between innings. I mean, granted, he was way before Babe Ruth, but yeah. Slugging down a, a, sh- a beer on the bench, a hot dog, hit a dinger, and then go strike out 15 guys. Sounds like a day's work. That's uh, all right with me. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So 1905, we're just getting into his uh, Rubidell's best years. He 1905, he actually won the triple crown for pitching. He finished with a 27 and 10 record, 287 strikeouts, and a 1.48 ERA. 1.48 for a year is just ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know what's most impressive there, the 1.84 ERA or 27 and 10. A 1.48 ERA. Uh, 1.48, excuse me. Either way, a, a, a one-point-something ERA is always phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he was actually, it's, it sounds crazy, but only 27 and 10 right, with a 1.48 ERA. You think he'd be a little better. Yeah, it's like when we talked about Nolan Ryan, how he would throw some ridiculous games. I saw some stat recently. He had like 200-something games in his career where his team scored less than three runs in support for him. So I might explain some of the losses, but I digress. That was um, like the year Steve Carlton, the Phillies won 54 games. He won 27 of them. Literally half their games? Yeah, and the one game Jeez. he won one to nothing. He was he had a solo home run. Oh, that is so badass. So badass. Uh, <laughs> so this was uh, Waddell's fourth consecutive season to finish with 20 or more wins. Uh, and this is where his eccentricity has really come back into play around this time. He was sharing a room with a teammate named O.C. Schreckengost. Uh, as was customary during the time, everyone shared a room. Schreckengost actually later refused to share the room until a contract clause was added to Waddell's contract that would stop him from eating crackers in bed. I don't know if they slept together or if he just didn't like him eating crackers in bed. Um, but either way, didn't like it. 1905 was also the year that Waddell gained more fame for saving the lives of people inside a department store when he picked up a burning oil stove that had overturned and carried it out of the building before it could start a fire. Didn't even think twice about it. Just picked it up and walked out. I don't think he was thinking about much, to be honest, just based on reading the stories about him. Um, his drinking problem exacerbated uh, was exacerbated by a tumultuous marriage with May Wynn Skinner. Uh, who's a, it was the second of three wives, and he ran into a series of injuries between 1905 and 1906. Skinner threatened to prosecute him for bigamy because she did not recognize the divorce that was granted to him in court. Um, but the divorce was legal, so she didn't have a case. Uh, on April 8th, he published an interview in the Scranton Republican newspaper titled Unkissed Girl Sought by Rube Waddell. The article proved yet another example of his progressing instability. Uh, his intent was to use the article as an advertisement for his desire to find himself another wife. Wife. This, man, man, this guy's just all over the place. This man would have crushed on Tinder, though. Are you kidding me? Wild. Swiping right, left, and right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so after his major league career was over, he pitched for a few more years, three more years in minor leagues, including 21 seasons for a team in Minneapolis. Um, by that point, though, his health had really declined to an extent where he was no longer the long, muscular guy he was for the past 10, 15 years. Um, while in Spring City, in spring training with the Minneapolis Millers, 
He actually helped save the city of Hickman, Kentucky from a devastating flood in the spring of 1912. He caught pneumonia, lost much of the vitality that had sustained him over the years, and a second flood in Hickman and another case of pneumonia ended up taking the rest of his, his power. Um, so that t- later that year, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis, moved below with his sister in San Antonio, Texas, and his health never recovered. He was placed in a sanitarium in nearby, nearby Elmendorf, Texas, and unfortunately passed away at the age of 37 years old on April 1st, 1914. Um, Waddell was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1946 by the Veterans Committee that looked to enshrine a number of players from his era in the previous century who had contributed to the growth of the game. One of Waddell's major contributions was that he was perhaps the number one draw in pro baseball for the first decade of the 1900s. Um, whose talent and personality drew fans in from around the world, um, not around the world, around the country. He was listed in 1981 in a book of the 100 greatest players of all time, um, where they the writers argued that uh, players such as him who showed truly exceptional talent, but their uh, careers were curtailed by injury, or for Waddell, that would be substance abuse, that their performances in the time that they were in the league would put them with the greatest of all time. Um, so Rue Waddell is considered to be a baseball great and has been by major league players long before that book stated it. The man lived a long and tumultuous life, um, very difficult, and I mean, but it makes for one heck of a story. I would love to see a movie on it. Um, yeah, I would go and see that. I'd, I'd pay to go see a movie like that. Absolutely. Just with what happened to him and what, what he went through his life and what he did. I didn't want to say went through because it sounds like he put himself in all the, a lot of these situations. But I'd be curious to know what else was going on based on the, the stories that were told. But, uh, Tom, that's the story of Rube Waddell, a, uh, just an enigma in a time when I think so much was so straight-laced. And there it, to just be so charismatic and so just eccentric. <laughs> yeah, it would fit right in with the uh, diva wide receivers we got today in the NFL. I think, yeah, I think I think he would make anyone today just look. I don't even. I think I was gonna say tame, well, well mannered. But the thing is, uh, so never. Not, and there's nothing here saying that he said it was all things he did. So who knows who he was as a person and how he talked and stuff. But based on his actions, it just sounds like he was a man that enjoyed the fine, the simpler things in life. And wanted to do things that made him happy. And, you know, if that was because of a mental uh, mental issues or, you know, so whatever it may be, he did what made him happy. And he was clearly a selfless person. You don't put yourself in a lot of those situations for, self, for, for personal gain. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I can't say I'd be looking to go save <laughs> town in kentucky from a flood and he tried it twice he did, he did it once and he tried it again um and so yeah 37 years old uh just just fascinating so ladies and gentlemen the that is all that all started with the um connie mack trading rubidell from the philadelphia athletics to the st louis browns um that is browns of the i believe of the baseball fame that same family or football fame but I may be wrong there. Either way, Rube Adele. Yeah, I mean, Rube, just looking up real quick to wrap up on him, finished his career with 23, 16, 2,316 strikeouts over the course of 2,961 and a third innings. Finished, uh, he's 55th all-time strikeout list. So imagine if he, you know, prolongs his career a bit more or has 
more innings compared. Like guy in front of him has forty five hundred innings pitched, twenty three hundred strikeouts. So you add another so two thousand. Two thousand more innings and only had three hundred more strikeouts. Uh, no, twenty three thirty four. So only eighteen more. Eighteen more strikeouts and in two thousand more innings. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that just shows the true sheer dominance of this man. And honestly, if you like, you, you said you're looking him up, and for anyone listening at home. Google Rube Waddell. I mean, you just look at the guy and you're like, okay, you look kind of like an interesting character. I want to know more about him. I, I actually probably will do more of a even further deep dive after this and see what I can find because he's like a, just a larger than life figure. And I, as someone who knows, a, I feel like a lot about baseball history. I didn't know much about this guy and just kind of came onto this recently. Yeah, like I said, I never heard of this guy before you brought up the story. So Fascinating. I'm, in the, I'm in the same boat, really love baseball. Yeah, love the history of it, and to never hear of someone like this, it makes you wonder what other stories are out there. Yeah, so I mean, uh, that's why we're here is to dive into these stories, and for us, and and for for those of you at home that that join us each week, is to uh, to learn more about the the wonderful, wide, wonderful world of sports. Tom, what do you got for us today? Uh, before we dive into anything, I want to talk about this beer we're drinking. This is from Victory Cold Front Cold IPA. It's actually a limited release. I think it's new this year. I've never had it before. I've not seen it either. 7.0 alcohol, ABV. Victory local here at Downingtown, PA. Woo whoop. I mean, to me, this this is ranking up there with some of the better beers I've had lately. Yeah, I could put back a few of these. Uh, nice, solid hoppiness without being overly bitter. Um, super drinkable. A little sweetness to it, some tropical flavors. Yeah, for those of you who like IPAs, definitely go grab some before they stop making it yeah, and put it out in stores. It. We have a we're we're very lucky to have a wonderful beer scene in Pennsylvania as a whole, but specifically here in Southeast PA, just really phenomenal beer scene across the board. I've had a lot of a lot of great beers over the past six and a half, seven years living here. Yeah, that's we're talking just here in Southeast PA. There's so much more outside of this area too. I've had a lot of great beers in other parts of PA too. Yeah, so definitely. Uh, for those of you in the in the area or coming through the Keystone State, drink some beer. All right, so for this story this week, uh, we're going to do a little something different. We're going to talk about a dunk contest that happened back on February 6, 1988. Oh, yeah. So one thing I want our listeners to make note of as to where this contest occurred, the United, uh, United Center, home of the Chicago Bulls. Now, before we get into the participants of this legendary dunk contest, Brian, do you know who participated in last year's NBA dunk contest? In last year's? Yeah, the uh, 2022 NBA dunk contest. Uh, honestly, no. I have no clue. Yeah, I think if you asked even like popular fans of the who follow the NBA and pay close attention to it, I don't know if they would be able to tell you either. No, I think the last year I paid attention to a slam dunk contest was the one where Aaron Gordon went over the Orlando Magic mascot with the under-the-leg dunk, and he lost, and I thought that was the most asinine thing. Yeah, that I think dunk got, was ridiculous. I think he got a job there, but hey, <laughs> we're not here to talk about the, that one. No, I know. Just to give you some insight here, Jalen Green, Cole Anthony, Obi Toppin, and Juan Toscano Anderson. I do know who all those people are, but there's literally zero excitement or star power in that lineup whatsoever. No, and that speaks to this dunk contest that we're going to review. So the participants in that one, you have Greg Anderson of the San Antonio Spurs, Jerome Kersey of the Portland Trailblazers, who happened to finish second the year before, Spud Webb of the Atlanta Hawks. He was the 1986 champ. And mind you, he's listed at five foot six. 
You got Otis Smith of the Houston Rockets, Clyde Drexler of the Portland Trailblazers, Dominique Wilkins of the Atlanta Hawks, and then the legend himself, MJ, Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls and the defending champion. I mean, you listed off three Hall of Famers there at the end, so that's uh that's huge. See, that's the thing is like these things used to be actual spectacles, like true events. Must watch TV. Yeah, it was massive. The fact that Michael Jordan competed not just this year, but numerous years. Go ahead. So I'm going to set the scene here a little bit more. Um, now, this one's mainly known for their epic final between Dominique and MJ. But those two actually faced off in a dunk contest three years prior in 1985 when Michael Jordan was actually a rookie. So that event, Dominique Wilkins, he actually won it. So 1986, Michael's hurt, so he can't participate. 1987, Dominique's hurt, so he can't participate either the following year. So on to the event itself here. Um, back in the day, like we just said, this event must watch TV. Like your stop point you're doing on Saturday night, you're making sure you're sitting down watching it, hanging out with the fellas. Maybe you're even going to the dunk contest because it was that that popular. Oh, yeah. and I mean, like I said, star power. You have freaking... MJ and the human highlight film, Dominique Wilkins going back and forth. Ridiculous. Now the rules for this year had everyone do two dunks in the first round and then they would cut the field um, in half to see who moves on from there. Sure. So MJ on his first two dunks receives a pair of 47s. He advances to the semis. Dominique, he receives a 49 and a 47, easily advancing on as well. Now to start off the semifinals, here's what most people probably don't remember. You know the infamous dunk where Jordan dunks from the free throw line? Oh, yeah. So he breaks that out on his first attempt in the semifinal round. I did not know that before looking into this Wait, story. Wait, so, so like the first time he hit that dunk was in the semi semifinal of this dunk contest? Correct. No way. Yes. Which is, it's so crazy because it looks like such a simple dunk in the grand scheme of things, but he jumped from the foul line. I yeah. didn't realize that was a semifinal. No, I had no clue. So that's a little precursor. That's the first attempt of the night for this dunk. Okay. Gets, a, gets a perfect 50, starts at the baseline of the opposite end, runs, dribbles, takes off from the free throw line, and, and dunks at home. So Dominique, he nearly matches it with his first attempt, scoring a 49 with a vicious windmill slam, jumping a few steps past the free throw line, and putting it home himself. So Michael's second attempt was a bit of a windmill on his own, as he leaped from the baseline and received a 48 for his dunk. Dominique's second attempt, he goes two-handed, rim-rattling, 360. That earns him a 47. I mean, watching some of these dunks, you kind of wonder, like, how are they not all 50s? So you see why they're getting, like, 47, 48s, because yeah. they're all just, like, that impressive. You can't just give it, and you can't just give everyone a 50. Like, it right, then it just, what is actually a 50? How, how good does it have to be? My question is, what is, like, the criteria for scoring for something like this, though? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there might be a little home bias. Some of the judges were from Chicago. I was even thinking that. I just think like you watch it nowadays, and it's just like people holding up these cards immediately after the dunk, and there's no – it's not like there's like – Ten. Yeah, it's not like, oh, a seven from the Russian judges or something like in figure skating. Who, like what is the criteria for a good dunk? All right, I digress. Go ahead. Yeah, good question. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to ask uh, – draw on a blank on who the commissioner is right now. Adam Silver. Yes, thank you. We'll have to ask him what uh, qualifies for a 10. <laughs> okay. So Michael's final attempt in uh, the second round here, he receives a 47. This one he takes off from one side of the rim, ducks his head under the rim, and then finishes with a reverse jam. Dominique matches 
Uh, also gets a 47 with an up and under dunk, kind of similar to what Michael did there. So this sets the stage for the finals as both Dominique and Michael have advanced to it. So there's actually a coin toss to see who went first for the finals, and uh, Dominique chose to go first here. Okay. So his first attempt, he goes, throws it off the backboard, really stretches it out, like kind of like you see in Space Jam where Michael, like, at the end, like, really... The arm extends. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like that because just, like, how, like, freakishly athletic this guy is and... Sure. Slams slams into the, uh, into the net that way. Gets a perfect score of 50. So, Michael, his first attempt, he gets a 50 of his own. He does a reverse jam. So, he brings the ball all the way down to, like, his knees and then oh, finishes yeah. with some umph there. Now, Dominique, on his second attempt of the finals takes off from the right baseline and then scores another perfect 50 uh, with the dunk he accomplished there. Now this dunk uh, that Dominique just did was another windmill, but this one definitely had a lot more authority behind it than the other dunks he's been doing the rest of the night. You can tell he's really getting into it with like the crowd behind him. So a little extra oomph on that. Yeah, definitely a little more. Um, Now Michael, his second attempt, he does something from the right baseline. He rocks the cradle and slams it home. However, he only earns a 47 with that dunk attempt. Ooh. All right. So he's he's behind at this point, right? Yeah. So at this point, Michael's behind uh, 197. Now on their third attempt, Dominique, he only earns a 45. He takes off from the left baseline, swings a two-handed windmill attempt by starting the ball at the backboard and then bringing it all the way to his right before powering it home. Again, like... This should not have been a 45, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm not trying to say things are scripted because this was also at the United Center, but that sounds like a heck of a dunk. Yeah, and to me, this, I thought, was his best attempt in the finals and should have been the 50. Interesting. Instead, it was a 45. Yeah, really strange. Yeah, that seems suspect. So, like I was saying earlier, Michael, for his first dunk of the semifinals, goes all the way back, runs, dunks it from the free throw line. He actually goes and does the same dunk for his third attempt in the final round against Dominique. Okay. All right. Interesting. See, I, I never liked that about dunk contests when a guy, you missed it the first time. You shouldn't, you, I feel like you shouldn't go for it again or you shouldn't be able to because it's not nearly as exciting once you finally do dunk it. Well, that's the thing. He did make it the first time, but yeah. he just went back to his bag of tricks and didn't come out with anything new, but it did the same thing that scored him a 50. See, that's whack. All right, that's whack. And now, this is where it gets crazier. He actually misses the first attempt in the finals. And he still got a 50? This is rigged. This is what people talk about when sports, they say sports is rigged and scripted. Because if Dominique throws down this big, more creative dunk and gets a 45, but then Michael misses one and then throws on the... Goes for the exact same dunk he did before, misses it, and goes again and gets a 50? You're... Oh, no way. I'm not, And this is from some of like I said, Michael Jordan fan. Michael Jordan's behind me, and there's 1,500 freaking magazines to my left about Michael Jordan. I'm here for it, but this is BS, Tom. Hey, I don't disagree because... I know, like, you didn't judge it. I'm sorry. Hey, I mean, if I'm judging here, I'm taking off at least two points because one, you already did it, and now I'll probably take off another two because you just missed it. So you're getting like a six or seven in my yeah, book. you get the 45. It's cool you jumped in the, the foul line, but we already saw this 30 minutes ago. Now... As I kind of prefaced earlier, this is in Chicago. So to get the crowd to it even more, he goes all the way like to the end baseline and then just starts taking off. He was a showman. I mean, this yes. is probably, you know, this is the most iconic, one of the most iconic dunks in NBA history. Double clutches at midair as he's leaping from the foul line, 
and then slams it home on the second attempt. I think that's why might be what did it was like the double clutch from that distance. It was like he just added that little bit of a flare to that dunk because like Doctor J did that same thing years before. Yep, it's not like it was the first time anyone did it. Yeah, and that's where Michael got the um, idea to do that dunk from. Shout out Doctor J, legend. So the judges they give him a perfect score of fifty. Michael only needed a forty nine to win. And with the 50, he then becomes a slam dunk champion, edging out Dominique Wilkins, 147 to 145. I mean, it's awesome. And this is this is young Michael, too. Like, he's not the, he's not the fully bona fide superstar that he turned into over time. I think this definitely helps him become bigger, though. Yeah, definitely. But, like, you can't tell me that doesn't feel off. I, might, I mean, I'd have to go watch it myself. But for you to miss a dunk and then get a 50 on it doesn't feel right at all. You get a max score after missing the first time. That's just wrong. Now, if you miss the first attempt and you just go and do something totally different, maybe I'll give you a max score. No, 100%. Yeah, if you miss the first attempt and you come back with a fully different dunk than what you just tried, I'll reset my scoring for you if if I was in that position. But if you come back and try to do the same thing, like I've watched the more recent ones I've watched, there's always somebody that misses the same dunk four times. And then they finally finally hit on the fifth. So you're like, woo. And instead it just feels like, all right, you get the participation trophy. Like here's the pat on the back. Yeah. The crowd's no longer into it. It's like, you've tried five times yeah, now. Like, yeah, you're right. Out. Just throw it down two handed and go sit on the bench. <laughs> yeah. Just put the ball in the basket. You clearly aren't winning. Get out of here. Now, as we've kind of talked about here, there's definitely some contra- controversy around the scoring in the finals. So after Dominique was quoted to say, when you're in somebody's hometown, it's always tough, but he had a great dunk. You have to admit if anybody's going to beat me, I'd rather have it be him. I, I respect that. That's that's very respectable response for possibly getting robbed in that decision. I really respect what, what Dominique says there. And Michael was even quoted to say, I felt if it wasn't in Chicago, I might, it might have gone the other way. A rare moment of humility from... He, this is clearly early, early Michael Jordan because that humility disappeared very quickly with him. Yeah, it's his, what, fourth, third or fourth year in the league at this point? Like, yeah, I believe he came in 84 or 85. Yeah, correct. So, 88 dunk contest. He's still, still a young, young, still young lad. Yeah, young buck with a chip on his shoulder. Wow. Now, I mean, for you, those of you who have not watched the actual videos, I try to do as best I could to describe each dunk, but take some time, go watch the dunk contest itself. It's truly amazing for guys in the 1980s to be doing the types of moves that they were i mean i'm probably gonna go home and watch it again just because it, it was, was that gonna, entertaining gonna say we'll we'll share some clips on our on our check out our instagram and our facebook at going back pod i'll share some clips on there check it out for yourself because it is i mean it's pretty awesome and it looks a little dated compared to now but i think it's just because it was so early in the concept where guys now have to innovate a lot and we, we grew up in the era of gerald green gerald green blowing out birthday candles and yeah, Dwight Howard tapping like the 12 foot. Yeah, Blake Griffin jumping over it. cars. It's because these guys innovated initially. But yeah, we'll share some clips on our on our Instagram and our Facebook at Going Back Pod. Yeah, I mean it's no Vince Carter hanging his elbow in the rim and Oh, Vince Sanity, dude. I had a I had a Vince Carter Raptors poster hanging in my bedroom at one point as a kid. He was just he was just built different. Yeah, the he's a freak athlete. I think he might have the best dunk ever over that seven foot six guy from maybe like uh, uh yes lithuania uh, i think it might have been in the france Olympics. of frederick weiss yeah some, something just seven like two a, it's a turnover next thing you know vince carter just goes fully up and over the guy and it's it's absurd yeah it's like that 98 or 2002 olympics yeah, like that. 
went up and over him. Just yeah, it's one of those those videos that I remember watching as a kid, and I still watch it now with the same like just goddamn like what like unbelievable. So before we wrap up and get out of here for tonight, let's touch on a, uh, a few of the current topics here in the sports world. Sure. First, uh, obviously, we have the Super Bowl coming up a few days away. Eagles, Chiefs. What are your thoughts, Brian? What are my thoughts, Tom? I hate to say it, but I don't. I don't know what to expect. I there's part of me that the Eagles, I think, are the more complete team. Yeah, through tough, and, through tough and through. With that, through and through. I think the Eagles are just a very complete team. What they put together here has been really, really good. It's phenomenal. Um, I, th- I think I saw uh, an infographic that of the eleven starters on their offense, they've drafted ten of them. The only one that they didn't draft was AJ Brown, and he's been a phenomenal trade for them. Right, and they acquired him with a first round pick though from the Titans. But might as well just be another draft pick. That's how I feel about Stephon Diggs here in Buffalo. So, um, so they've done a great job. I think they're the more complete team. But there's just something about Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes and the NFL script writing. Just kidding. I I, <laughs> I know it's going around a lot lately. I don't know. I don't believe it. Yeah. Shout out to Arian Foster. Yeah. Right. Oh my God. He wants to just. He wants to be relevant again. After his three years of amazing running, um, I don't know, man. It's hard to give a true a true prediction or anything. I the Philly area person in me wants to say the Eagles have it, but there's just part of me that thinks that Mahomes, it, Mahomes and Kelsey and Reed are just gonna take it. And with that being said, if I'm gonna make a prediction, it's gonna be thirty eight thirty five. Ooh, high scoring. Yeah, yeah. Dude, over ne- neither of these defenses are that good. They're really not. Both of these offenses are that good, though. That's the thing. Like, the Eagles defense gets a lot of sacks. They get some picks. But they also get burnt. They get beat. They have their moments. The Chiefs offense is phenomenal. Their defense has its moments, but it also gets beat. I um I think the script is going around. It's like 37-33, 37-34. I'm calling 38-35. I'm going to call it in favor of the birds. Oh, no. All right, that's all you're getting today because my parents complained that we're playing that too much on the show. Um, So sorry, Mom and Dad, but um, I got to go with the birds. I mean, we're here. We're in the area. And if it's not the Bills coming out of the AFC East – it better be the other team winning. Tom, what are your thoughts? Go birds. So before I dive into that, <laughs> just want to throw a quick stat at you that I saw from Field Yates. Follow him on Twitter. Great for fantasy football advice. Also puts out a lot of good stats too. He does put out a lot of good stuff. So the Chiefs this year, 16-3 overall record, 546 points scored. Uh, I've seen this. Six all pros, including a Kelsey brother and their quarterback. AFC's number one seed. The Eagles this year, 16-3 and overall record. 546 points scored, six all pros, including a Kelsey brother and their quarterback, the NFC's number one seed. Stupid. It gets, it's so bizarre. It's just so uncanny. Yeah. What are the odds of that happening? I, I have no Slim idea. to none, I feel like is high. Yeah. Like you feel like you have a slightly better chance of winning the lottery. I mean, I, who knows that? They can come up with a statistic for everything, and I'm sure there's somebody out there right now that could crunch those numbers and give you an actual probability. Not my job, but <laughs> no, not at all. To me, like we were, you were just touching on, the Eagles have the more complete team. I, I know you were kind of just hating on their defense a little bit, but 
that pass rush, they really get to the quarterback. And yeah. I think if you can drop back and not blitz Mahomes, we'll see how healthy that ankle is. If it's still a little banged up and you can, you know, let Hassan Reddick, Brandon Graham, and that front line just get after the quarterback with dropping back, double teaming Travis Kelsey a little bit with their wide receiver core being banged up too. I mean, you have Tyreek Hill's no longer there. Nicole Hardman, he went on IR, so he's yeah. not going to play in the Super Bowl. Granted, they activated Clyde Edwards-Alaire. We'll see if he actually plays or not. He's been useful out of the backfield as a pass catcher. But Jarek McKinnon's filled in really well in that role oh, yeah. since he went down. Yeah, but the Tyreek Hill argument has been used against them a few times, and Mahomes' numbers are better this year than they were last year with with Hill in, the, in that offense. Yeah, it's no more like a big play, throw it just 50 yards down the field, let Tyreek catch it. It's more of yeah. a, I don't want to say dink and dunk, but it's a more like methodical offense. I think that, I mean, and we can dive into this in a little bit of a, a Super Bowl preview, but I think that the Eagles defense needs to allow their front four to pin their ears back and get after, because if you can yeah, just get after him, if you can get after Mahomes, you got him. If you give him time to make plays or you flush him out and don't get him, yeah, you he will make a, a play. So, as much as I don't love the guy, he's very good at what he does, and you need to put the pressure on him to to get to get the ball out quick and make the plays you need to make. And as we discussed last week, Hassan Raki has nineteen and a half sacks in nineteen games, so he's he's going to be the difference maker there for you. Um, oh, he's been he's been phenomenal, and I did not I personally did not expect it. I kind of expect him to maybe six sacks and fall back to earth, but I was obviously very very wrong. Yeah, I hope he keeps it up. I hope he gets at least one or two sacks here in the Super Bowl. With that said, I think the Eagles, I think they do come out on top. I took them minus one before the odds really shifted. The opening line was about two and a half in some books with yeah. the Chiefs being favorite. Quickly dropped down. I saw it minus one, snagged it, basically even money. You got the Eagles minus one? So I got the Eagles minus one. So more or less oh, right. Oh, yeah. Right That's with their solid. money line. So as long as they win... I don't lose money. If they win by more than one, right. I'll make a profit. So I go like birds. That. I'm going to say 38. Sorry. 31-28 is the final score. All right. That's fair. I win think we, by a field goal. We're both expecting field goal games or, or win by a field goal, higher scoring games. Tom, what are you doing for the Super Bowl? That's a great question. Haven't figured that out yet. Definitely need to. <laughs> definitely need to. Coming up quick. I mean, it's already February 7th. We're about, about five days away. Yeah, it'll be here Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't exactly know yet. I like. Like I said, don't really have a huge stake in the game, but I love. I love the idea of being around Eagles fans while it's going on. Um. I we actually had an offer. My wife's friend offered to let us come down to her house for the Super Bowl parade if they win, and I refused. I am never going to be at a Super Bowl parade until it is in the streets of Buffalo. I will be here. I will celebrate the Eagles winning another Super Bowl with all of you. We can drink party the night away sing the fight song as many times as we want but i will not be at the parade that will never happen no i mean being at the one in 20 after the 2017 super bowl victory i don't know if i want to deal with the hassle of going back down even here you know being an eagles fan i would just, just i would take the train yeah i mean but still from when i went to the phillies parade in 2008 the all the public like transportation services got shut down because they were just so packed up and like they weren't accepting uh, anyone else on the rides when i went to the Eagles one, I got to ride down with uh previous friend, Chun. Shout out to Chun. Josh Chun. He drove down and we went. Like, that was okay. That that made it. I didn't realize you went with him. Yeah, we went huh. back at our uh, 
previous employer's days. Oh, yeah. He drove, so shout out to him. But <laughs> I, you know, do I really want to drive down there myself? No. Do I want to take no the train way, and deal with the headache of all the people on public transportation? I hate the Philly Probably traffic. Either. I hate the Philly traffic in general on Super Bowl parade day. Absolutely not. So, all I'm hoping for, you know, Eagles fan aside, I just want to see a good game. I feel like that's what everybody wants when you watch the Super Bowl, one of the most watched sporting events every year. So, oh yeah. So as long as there's a good game, I'll still be happy. A little more bummed out if they don't pull out the victory, but hey, go birds. Let's see a win. Yeah. This country revolves around football. The world shuts down for football. You could take President's Day and get rid of that. Turn Super Bowl Monday into a holiday so everyone can get the day off afterwards. Speaking of presidents, whoever runs for office and says that the day after the Super Bowl will be a national holiday, I will vote for you. You're getting mad votes, I can tell you that. Tom, what do we got coming up in the next few weeks? Pitchers and catchers reporting, you said? Yeah, pitchers and catchers. I believe that starts about a week from today, if I'm not mistaken. Really hope for the Phillies baseball season Uh, coming up. Dude, they're looking good. I think we, I think, you know, we are a sports history podcast, but I think we'd be remiss to not do a little Phillies special, a little Phillies uh, preseason conversation. Oh, I'm 100% in. Shane Bryce, Har- Bryce Harper is going to be out for a few months to start the year. That's all right, but they got talent yeah, I mean, around when sign, him. When you sign Trey Turner to come in, basically replace uh, him, it equals out, and then you just add in all-star future, hopefully hopefully future fall, uh, Hall of Famer into the lineup come June, July. What more can you ask for? Yeah, dude, I got my Mike Schmidt, Mike Schmidt jersey, but I might be having to add a Trey Turner to the mix. All right, guys. Well, that looks like it's going to do it for us today. Again, follow us on all socials at Going Back Pod, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, check us out each week, every Wednesday morning. Uh, usually is out around 9 a.m. Tom, what do you got for us before we head out here today? Yeah, one more thing. Uh, remember, kids, there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. Famous words from A League of Their Own. Great movie. Check it out if you haven't. Thanks again for joining us this week, and we will catch you next week on Going Back, Back, Back. Go, Birds! <laughs>